If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Whether it was creating super-fast thoroughbreds or fashioning dogs small enough to fit in your sleeve, animal breeding was an obsession of the Renaissance era. And, as Mackenzie Cooley reveals, animal husbandry prompted people to think about whether humankind could also be improved by selective breeding. She's the author of a Cundall Prize shortlisted book on the subject called The Perfection of Nature, and she spoke to Ellie Cawthorn to reveal more about how Renaissance ideas on animal breeding tied into colonialism, race and eugenics. Thank you so much for joining me, Mackenzie. Your book, The Perfection of Nature, explores some often thorny connections between animal breeding and ideas about the improvement of humankind in the Renaissance. So before we go any further, can you give us a bit more context and introduce us to some of the themes of the book in a bit more depth? Yeah, absolutely. So this is a book that's all about the most intimate moments of life, the choices of reproduction, and that age-old debate between nature and nurture. It explores how animals really acted as a portal, as a gateway into the most intimate decisions of human life, and that is with whom to reproduce. So what I looked at in this case study were the perspectives of animal breeders, people who we normally don't think of as scientists per se, but these are the folks who were observing the birds and the bees and nature making in progress. And they had all sorts of ideas about where 
potential came from, how much of that inherent potential could be modified through education, and what the potential ramifications of all of that work might be. And what I found are some of the earliest mentions of the term race. Race, as you know, we know of it in our present, is a way of distinguishing between different human ethnicities. But that's really not the origins of what is a Renaissance word. When it was coined in order to describe the animals that were born as part of these stud farms and breeding projects that were really intent on making the fastest horse or the Dalmatian with the greatest number of spots or the dog that might fit most perfectly up in one's sleeve. So it's kind of wild. And what I found over the course of this case study is that everywhere we look, there are eugenic principles. And the Renaissance, what we see as this moment of the explosion of human intellect and potential was actually one moment that was very committed to modifying potential through breeding. I'm glad that you use the word eugenics there, because when we're talking about inherited characteristics, really the ideas that spring to mind are, as you say, eugenics and, of course, evolutionary theory. But these are ideas that really didn't come into play until many centuries later. And we're talking about the Renaissance here. Can you tell us a bit about the connection there? Are these the precursors to those ideas? These are absolutely the precursors to those ideas. So the term eugenics really springs into use with Galton in the 19th century. But what I'm looking at here is centuries and centuries before most of my material comes from the age of Leonardo da Vinci all the way up to the time of Galileo. So that, that basically swings between 1450 and 1650. And what that means is that some of the language of what we see as science is nascent. It's coming into being in that very moment. But what these breeders are describing is very much what will later be identified in eugenic terms, right? It's the singling out of very particular traits, traits that could then be focused on and be improved. It's the use of pedigrees to map out the ways in which human families and non-human animal families are all related to one another, and to think critically through different parts of that family tree. So what we see as a eugenic story, which is a modern story, a story that comes out of Darwin and then, of course, has such dangerous repercussions for the modern world, is really one that I think is based on principles that were inculcated in the Western tradition as early as the Renaissance. Most of us today probably don't think very much about animal breeding. Well, at least I don't think very much about animal breeding. But you say that there was this obsession with breeding in the Renaissance. How ubiquitous was the art of animal breeding? Who was doing it? Yeah, I, I think it's a question about where one first encounters sex, right? Perhaps for us in our present, it's watching some luscious drama and, you know, putting yourself into Keira Knightley's shoes, right? But for people living in an agricultural society in which they have animals all around them, there are horses that draw their carriages through the, the city centers. There are cows that provide the milk and their foods. And of course, there are pets that are running around their households. The first experience that one's likely to have with the birds and the bees is literally with the birds and the bees, right? So, Everybody was involved in animal breeding projects to a large or small degree, 
But it was particularly of interest to patrons like Isabella d'Este, this amazing collector and patroness of the Renaissance art world, who wanted to have a little bit more control over the animal life and the human life that surrounded them. And because these folks were surrounded by intimacy that wasn't romantic intimacy, they were a lot more open to discussing the rather body terms of sexual engagements and the results of those, those moments of intimacy. And I think that the real thing I would like to highlight is that this is a time, of course, in which monarchy and nobility is believed to be inherited, right? So reproduction is everybody's business. So in many ways, how separable is a prince from a stud? We would see it as a very illiberal vision of potential. And certainly by the time we get to the Victorian era, a lot of these approaches to an body sexual nature of nature have been ironed out, have been obscured from the public focus. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it. So your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. So who first went from saying, OK, we can breed a dog ever smaller so it fits in your sleeve, or we can breed an incredible racehorse? Who took those ideas and thought, wait a minute, if we can do that with animals... Why don't we do that with humans? Who were some of the first thinkers in this area? For better and for worse, the idea that we could take animal breeding and use it for the control of human potential is actually an ancient one. I open the book with this epigraph that comes from none other than Plato's Republic. And it's a scene in which we have Socrates speaking to Glaucon. And of course, Socrates being Socrates is asking deep and profound questions. And Glaucon is then responding. And Socrates asks, I see that you have hunting dogs and you have these great birds at home. 
Have you noticed anything about their mating or breeding? And Glaucon says, like what? And Socrates continues, in the first place, although they're all noble, aren't there some that are the best and prove themselves to be so? And Glaucon agrees, there are. Do you breed them all alike or do you try to be breed from the best of them? And Glaucon says, well, I try to breed from the best. And Socrates pushes him and pushes him until he essentially says, why don't we use these principles in order to improve the humans around us? So this potential of breeding is present in the Bible and it's definitely present in works by Plato that become popularized in their Renaissance with this turn toward antiquity. But there were certainly successes in creating very distinct animal breeds at earlier times in history. But what we see in Renaissance courts is a lot more focus on what it means to make the perfect dog or the perfect horse and a growth of print literature that popularizes these efforts. There are a lot of popular books about how to create the best horse, whether through training or through breeding, because of course, horses were the animal that designated nobility. I'm interested in how this fit within the religious mindset of the time. So if all creatures are of God's perfect design. How do you fit that with the idea that actually, if we tweak things a bit here and there, we can make things even more perfect? There was an inherent hierarchy that was visible to people living in the early modern world. And they saw themselves as belonging to what scholars have called the great chain of being. And so the great chain of being, of course, had God up at the top, kind of the ultimate pyramid. And then there were angels and there were other divine beings. And then there were humans, but beneath humans, there were other animals that were supposed to be more perfect because of how they reproduced. And that means they wouldn't spontaneously generate from the ground like worms or just appear like bugs were supposed to. The spontaneous generation theory didn't apply to them. Instead, these are the kinds of animals that Noah would bring on his ark. So in many ways, what will eventually emerge as a Catholic system of nature was very comfortable with inherent hierarchies. And from the Noahic passage onwards, really quite interested in the matching or creating of appropriate partnerships that you would need to do if you were bringing animals two by two onto the ark. That's really interesting stuff. I guess I'd like to take these ideas that are swilling around and kind of lock them down into something more concrete. How did these ideas actually play out in real life in the Renaissance era? Well, first of all, Renaissance princes like the Gonzaga, the Dukes of Mantua, used so much of their social clout and their money to import animals from abroad. This ability to reach their tendrils of control out into places like the Ottoman Empire or North Africa or Spain was definitely a political project. Animals are a really good gift. But even more than that, they could then be used by the Gonzaga, who employed a whole bevy of breeders and animal trainers in order to take their ideas of creating noble animals and put them into action. So we have the case of creating the fastest racehorses that are supposed to win the polio races, which are these really lovely city-based horse races in which everybody in the town gathers into the city center and watches different quarters of the, the town and in the Renaissance, different noble horses brought in from nearby cities compete against one another. 
And so I studied these amazing and beautifully illustrated lists of the winners of these polio contests, in which we see some of the earliest mentions of this term race as attached to lists of pedigrees. Something that has just popped into my head is that You know, we're talking now in 2023, where what, four centuries on from the time period you're looking at, and that's been four centuries of animal breeding. The animals that we're talking about in the Renaissance, would we recognise them today or would they look quite different from the animals that we know today? Oh, well, that depends on who you ask. (laughs) So many breeders today are extremely proud of the early modern heritage as they see it. One single through line that undergirds their animals. So if you look at a lot of the popular dogs, right, a lot of their progenitors are supposed to be early modern. This is true with horses, too. You can go to Vienna and watch the Lipsoners of the high school do these airs above the ground. Even if you look at thoroughbreds, right? Thoroughbreds are supposed to have a really singular early modern story. But it remains to be seen exactly how closely related these animals are to their historical predecessors. I think that there remains to be done a lot of exciting work on testing the genetic likenesses between populations of animals we know in the present and the early modern stock on whom they are historically based. And that breeders today link their histories to intentionally through the creation of pedigrees. Mm, It's a fascinating topic. I remember seeing a picture of Hogarth's pug and his pug is not like a pug you would see today. I don't know whether it was a bad likeness or pugs have been so bred since then that they're not very recognisable. Just generally, you look at some amazing sources in the book. I just wondered if there were any that really stuck in your mind that you wanted to share that were particularly surprising or eye-opening or intriguing in what you found in them. Yeah, definitely. I'm particularly proud of some of the work I did on the idea of grafting using this map that is a Nawa map from the age of the Aztecs. Just as Aztec communities are being taken out of the control of indigenous leaders and moved into Spanish hierarchies. And this amazing map includes depictions of grafting. So the cutting of trees and the grafting on of new plants. And while this is mostly a book about animals, I think that everybody should take a look at these incredible indigenous maps that teach us how to read not only for Roman alphabetic scripts, but also through glyphs. And this is the earliest, we think, depiction of grafting, which wasn't a technology used in the Americas, depicted on American soil. So I think that's pretty cool. This is, of course, the era of European expansion, imperial expansion into what they thought of as the New World, most notably in your case that you look at the Americas. So where does that fit into this picture? How does colonisation connect to these new ideas of race and, as you say, breeding? Absolutely. One of the falsehoods that's most often told about the Americans is that the Americans, and by this I mean indigenous American people before the Europeans arrived, did not breed things, did not have a control over agriculture or landed husbandry. This is entirely bogus that's made up by Europeans. And it's made up by Europeans at a time in which much of the infrastructure that really undergirded a lot of indigenous American husbandry and indigenous American agriculture had been undermined by the Europeans. 
So what I try to do in my book is to show that however dubious we think the commitment to breeding animals to make a more perfect world might be, those same efforts to perfect nature through breeding are something that we see in places like the court of Moctezuma among the Aztecs in the Americas. So breeding is not solely something that's relegated to Europe. It's also something that really appears with any landed urban center. So I study in particular the language of breeding that emerges among the Aztecs. These are people who speak the indigenous language of Nahuatl. And they didn't breed horses. Horses had gone extinct in the Americas long before as a result of the earliest human settlements there. But they did breed dogs, sometimes for companionships, sometimes for work, but very often for consumption. And they would also breed turkeys and honeybees and even the cochineal insects that would make that really flagrant red that Europeans were so obsessed with. And you've been talking earlier about these new ideas of race, what historians often refer to as the invention of race. How did that impact colonial relations at this time? If we take seriously the fact that the word race comes from animal breeding projects in Europe, then the use of the term race in order to describe humans is kind of malign, isn't it? It essentially takes this language of animals, this language of bestiality, and uses it to talk about people like Jews, people like Moors, and of course, people like frequent providers of the labor that made the system of colonization work, indigenous people, but even to a greater extent, black Africans. So, while the core of my book is really focused on the appearance of this language to describe animals, I also trace how this animal language applies to humans. And what we find is in the colonial Latin American experiment, there are a lot of authors who are willing to reach to these terms of bestialization in order to describe what they see as the mixed groups surrounding them. So for instance, mestizo. The word mestizo is frequently used today in order to describe someone of mixed European and indigenous heritage. But in the early modern period, it was also regularly used to describe animals of mixed breed, right? Begins as an animal term, just like race, and then starts to seep into a human category. And so what I trace in this book is the growing reliance on animal metaphors in order to describe the humans present in the Americas in animalizing terms that also strip them of their own authority. Over the course of that transition, race as a European word, first indigenous people tried to come up with their own language that would describe the same thing. So we see that through the emergence of this term chinachli, which is used in Nahuatl, the language of the Aztecs, in order to describe the chosen seed, right? The perfect seed that you would pick from an ear of corn and plant in the ground. It's also the word for the chosen son or the chosen chicken, right? All of these words, just like race, are all wrapped up. And so in early Nahuatl discussions of race, we see them actually using this term of chinach, chinachli, in order to describe the lineage, the potential for breeding and inheritance that's all wrapped up in that language. But as time went on, the European discourse of race was really kind of 
grafted onto the way that Americans spoke about themselves and the world around them. European colonization had won out. Something that you say in the book that I was intrigued by is that Renaissance patrons were more interested in growing than weeding. Can you explain a bit what you mean by that and the implications? Yeah, absolutely. So this gets back to our conversation around the definition of eugenics, right? We very often think as people who are living in the 21st century about the devastating effects of eugenic policies that thought some people were better than others. That, of course, you know, when, when taken to their extremes in Nazi Germany, led to the extermination of whole groups of people. More often than not, the breeders who I examine in this book were not interested in killing anything or anybody off. They weren't murderous. And that's not to say that people around them weren't, right? This is, of course, the moment of pogroms. There's a lot of anti-Jewish violence. There's a lot of violence against Moriscos, or people who had converted from Islam in Spain. There's ghettoization of people of all sorts of different backgrounds. So discrimination is real at this time. But what I mean by this difference between growing and weeding, it's that people who spent their whole lives devoted to thinking about how to create a more perfect nature through breeding were more interested in amplifying what was good or what they saw as what was balanced rather than getting rid of what they thought was bad. I think, though, that this is particularly important for us to reckon with today. We live in a moment in which there are new technologies that help people control their fertility. We can know more about the children that we carry before we have them. We can make decisions about the embryos that we choose to use in some pregnancies, right, as people start to use IVF more regularly. Very often those choices are made to find balance or to give someone the best chance at having a good life. The dangerous repercussion of my book is, I think, that those choices, while they might not be weeding, are certainly eugenic in their undertones, and that we need to think really carefully about them before we start to implement them whole scale. That leads me on nicely to my last question, which is what you would want readers to take away from your book. What are some of the other resonances that you perhaps see for today? I hope readers pick up this book and start to see the animals around them in a whole different way. I hope that they hear about their friend who's adopted a dog through a, a shelter or through a kennel, and they think about what a radical decision that is as compared to going to a breeder. But I also hope that they do things like watch the Kentucky Derby, forgive my American inclinations here, right? But watch the Kentucky Derby, and they think about all of the work that went into making those animal bodies. And rather than distancing themselves from that animal world, that they start to reckon with the fact that perhaps we are not so different from them. And many of the same choices that have been tried and tested on animals are actually used on humans in the end. Animals more often than not are used by scientists and by philosophers to think through human practices or to think through human potential. So are we experimenting with potential when we root for a particular horse to win a race? I think we are. That was Mackenzie Cooley. Her book, The Perfection of Nature, 
animals breeding and race in the Renaissance is shortlisted for the Kundal History Prize, of which we are a media partner. We'll be speaking to other shortlisted authors in the coming weeks, so look out for those episodes. You can listen to more interviews with shortlisted authors on our website at historyextra.com slash Kundal or find out more about the prize at kundalprize.com. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden.